Good evening. Welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me is Dr. Robert Spies. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, uh, we're quite pleased to have uh, Dr. Catherine Behesti. She is a Sea Grant Fellow with the Ocean Protection Council and will be taking a position shortly with a UC Santa Barbara. And uh, I've been waiting to do an interview like this on because the topic is uh, focused on eelgrass. And Dr. Behesti is a uh, marine ecologist uh, concerned broadly about the uh, inshore marine ecology and how the communities operate. The sea grasses are a big part of that, not only in California, but other places. Dr. Behesti, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you both so much. Thanks for the introduction. Um, so just to start, I guess I'll uh, begin with reviewing sort of my academic journey to now just enjoying spending time in poor visibility environments in California's estuaries, diving in, you know, sometimes five feet of water, which is pretty unusual for a scuba diver. So before we dive into all that fun, I guess I'll review that if that sounds good to you guys. That'd be great. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in uh, marine biology and uh, kind of your, uh, your various positions uh, ending up now with the Ocean Protection Council. Yeah, sure. So, you know, when I was in high school, I was a hippie at heart before it was kind of cool in the 90s. And I was, you know, the only high schooler driving a Prius before, again, Priuses were cool to drive. <laughs> and I was on the pre-med trajectory and thinking I was going to go into medicine and volunteering at local hospitals and the local search, uh, services for brain injury center near my house and was kind of on that trajectory and was fighting really hard <laughs> against, you know, this inner naturalist in me, even though, you know, in high school, AP environmental science was my favorite class and where I really started to um, foster some deep stewardship uh, in terms of my relationship with the natural world. And I started at uh, UC Irvine for my undergraduate degree and I ended up with a Bachelor of Science in Earth Environmental Science. And there's kind of an interesting uh, story that I always like to tell about that. Basically, I had a killer quarter where I took physics, ochem, and genetics in a single quarter <laughs> and did not do too well. <laughs> I have and one of so, those. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty painful. It was a pretty awful quarter. And the biological school, biological sciences, because I was pre-med at the time, um, said, hey, your overall GPA is now too low. You must change majors, which was devastating. <laughs> and so I came back home for winter break and was trying to figure out what to do and ended up kind of reflecting and thinking about where I saw myself in the future and embracing the fact that, you know, I had spent a lot of my time at the UC Natural Reserve System at UC Irvine, which is the San Joaquin Marsh. And this is uh, one of many UC reserves that are um, part of this network. And that's when I was really happiest. And so I transitioned from the School of Biological Sciences, ironically, to the School of Physical Sciences and had to take more physics, which was a cruel little, um, you know, <laughs> piece of the story that I had to kind of sort through. And, um, you know, had this incredible mentor, Dr. Peter Bowler, who really taught me what 
true stewardship and environmental literacy looked like and trusted me to, as an undergraduate to basically be the unofficial TA of his limnology and freshwater ecology class. And I remember, you know, that was when I got really into taxonomy and freshwater and brackish marshes. And we were working on restoring these, these brackish ponds and tracking southwestern pond turtles, which have really low population numbers and are only um, doing poorer and poorer as the years go on and tracking light-footed clapper rail or now Ridgeway's rail nests, you know, like all that really cool work that is very applied in nature. And I was really struggling because at the same time I had gotten scuba certified. And so I was really struggling on, okay, am I going to do this more terrestrial intertidal ecology work or am I going to do subtidal ecology? Because there's really nothing more magnificent than diving in kelp forests. And so I was really torn. And so when I moved back home after getting my bachelor's degree, I started to volunteer at the uh, Seymour Marine Discovery Center and I spent time at the California Academy of Sciences and I got scientific diving certified at Moss Landing Marine Labs and was kind of threading everything together and started volunteering for um, Dr. Brent Hughes, who I now am uh, collaborating with on ongoing and past work. Um, and he was finishing up his dissertation and interestingly enough, I followed immediately in his footsteps, and we actually share the same PhD co-advisors, Drs. Pete Ramundi and Kirstie Lawson, and I know Pete was on your show, so that's pretty cool to be able to see him and, uh, you know, be able to do this, um, knowing that this is something that he's participated in as well. And so, um, you know, I found that working in an estuary was sort of the perfect blend of my two interests. I didn't have to choose. It was like the Goldilocks. I could do the more terrestrial you know, uh, intertidal estuarine ecology work, but also do subtidal ecology work, working in the eelgrass meadows of Elkhorn Slough. And so that's what I did and got my master's and PhD at UC Santa Cruz in ecology and evolutionary biology and finished my degree in January of this year, actually, and then immediately started my fellowship with the California Ocean Protection Council working in their climate change program. And that is an experience I, it was, it's been life-changing basically, because I really wanted to be able to learn how to make my more basic research impactful. And so understanding how decision makers take science and apply it to make management and policy decisions was something that I was really lacking because of how um, basic my science really was. And so now I have this really strong applied lens that I can do a lot more of my future work in. And so I'm wrapping up my fellowship, like uh, Bob said, this in the next month, and then immediately in January of next year, start an assistant researcher position at UC Santa Barbara, working on their uh, San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station or SONGS Mitigation Monitoring Program. So for that work, I'm going to be joining a team that's been working for the last 30 plus years on monitoring this artificial reef called Wheeler North Reef um, down in San Diego County and um, the San Diego, San Diego wetland uh, in San Diego as well. And so we'll be monitoring the these two projects and seeing how they are performing and whether or not they're compliant with the performance metrics that they need to meet to get credit for the power plant. That Santa Onofre program has been there for years and years. 
Yeah. 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 Oh, fantastic. Uh, that's, a, that's a great story. So let, let's talk a little bit about seagrasses in general, and then we'll get down to the species that are along our coast. But uh, they're all, all over the world, aren't they? Are, are they all in one family, or what, what do they look like taxonomically? And how many yeah. species are there? Great question. So seagrasses are pretty much everywhere except for the Antarctic. They're the widest, they have the widest distribution of any coastal habitat type. So, you know, they're in the tropics, they're in the temperate latitudes, they're in the Arctic latitudes. Um, and they are taxonomically not that diverse. So there's about 72 species spread across only four families. So that's, um, uh, you know, not the most diverse group, but what's really interesting about them is that they do vary a lot in their morphology. And so some seagrasses are pretty short. So the, the actual photosynthetic blades are only tens of centimeters. And then others can be, oh goodness. Um, so for the local seagrass that we have in California that makes up most of the um, state's eelgrass habitat, which is Zoster Marina, that can get up to two-ish, a little bit higher than two meters. Hmm. But there are some seagrass species within the family Zosteraceae that can be up to like 30-something feet, so so quite tall. They can be, they're called meadows for a reason because they sort of resemble uh, grassy meadows that we have on land. Yeah, talk a little about where these, uh, where these patches occur and, and why and what makes them distinctive. Yeah, so seagrasses evolved from land plants. So they are actually true marine flowering plants or angiosperms. And they evolved about 100 million years ago, I believe. And um, they occur in shallow water environments. And the reason that they occur in shallow water uh, is because they need a lot of light to photosynthesize. And so because light availability decreases with depth, if anyone has dove at the bottom of the pool, you know, at night with the pool light at the top, it gets much darker at the bottom. So the same thing happens in nature. The deeper you go, the more light attenuation there is. And so um, they're typically restricted to shallow water, soft sediment environments. There are some exceptions to that. So um, Phyllospadix is a surf grass that grows in the intertidal and actually can grow on rock, but most seagrass occurs in shallow soft sediment um, environments. And that's because the roots grow underneath the sediment, whereas algae grows on hard substrate using like a holdfast type of mechanism. So eelgrass and seagrasses in general, they have more of a root-like um, anchoring structure. Yeah, they must have made some interesting physiological adaptations to uh, grow in uh, the marine environment where it's, you know, seawater is what, 3% salt. And that kills most vascular plants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So a few, you know, they have a lot of similarities with land plants. So they have chloroplasts that, you know, through photosynthesis convert CO2 and oxygen into, you know, um, uh, sugar and all that sort of thing. But you know, where land plants have stomata, which open and allow that CO2 in, seagrasses obviously can't have that same mechanism because if they have some sort of structure to open for 
CO2, they're also going to let in water. So what they have instead are these, um, uh, how do I explain this? So, so they have this mechanism through which CO2 is like actually brought to the plant where it's this thin cuticle layer that allows gases and nutrients to diffuse in and out of the leaves. And so they also, if you've noticed um, kelp forests, when you're looking at kelp forests from the surface, the kelp plants are, are bobbing at the surface at a low enough tide. And that's because they have the nematocysts that are filled with you know, gas that allow them, they're like little buoys. So seagrasses have a similar mechanism. It's called lacunae. And they're these gas-filled pores that occur in the veins of the seagrass blades. And that those gas-filled pores are what keep the seagrass buoyant. And actually, cool story here is I'm actually mentoring two 11-year-olds that won this like contest that's run by NASA. It's called like the iLead program. And they're sending Zostra into space. And conducting an experiment to see how the lacunae, these air-filled pockets, change in space versus on Earth. And so they're running a parallel experiment where they have a control on Earth, and then they're sending something to the International Space Station, and then it'll come back. So um, that's just a cool, super cool program that these girls are doing. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> so they're going to... they're. Uh, the seagrass is going to expand its habitat range immensely. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Temporarily. Yeah, exactly. I always think of uh, seagrasses as kind of keystone species, especially zostro along this coast. They really uh, are important, uh, support an important part of the environment, interact with a lot of other important species in uh, interesting ways. Yeah, definitely. They're definitely considered... Um, foundation species and ecosystem engineers because they really define the ecosystems that they build. You know, they control biological diversity of all the associated species that use seagrass either for a duration or the entirety of their life history. And they influence some key ecosystem processes, which I'd be like super happy to get into. There's tons of ecosystem functions that eelgrass supports. Yeah, I think I'd love to hear about that because it, it seems like they need a certain kind of environment. They need to have this substrate they can grow in, but they also, mm -hmm. by doing so, alter that environment themselves and create uh, a kind of a novel environment. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, and so just to close the loop a little bit on their distribution and where they grow, you know, it's a careful balance because they do, they do occur intertidally. Like Zostra doesn't does occur intertidally, but it also occurs subtidally. But the thing about intertidal Zostra is that, you know, they're not adapted to be exposed to air and high high air temperatures for too long. Otherwise, they can dry out. And so it's actually really interesting because, um, you know, I, I myself and Dr. Melissa Ward we led this review of eelgrass restoration projects along the Pacific Northwest. And we were talking to practitioners in Oregon and Washington, and it became clear that, you know, they're able to do a lot of their eelgrass restoration projects higher in the intertidal than we can in California because they have cooler temperatures and the high, the, um, you know, low tides in the summer often coincide with foggy, foggy midday 
kind of conditions. And so they're actually able to restore higher in the title frame than we can in California. And that they also have seen the recent losses of restored eelgrass in the intertidal zone when they have these anomalous, really warm, um, warm days with these that correspond to these low tide um, uh, midday uh, conditions. And so, you know, there's a balance there between growing where desiccation risk is higher the more you're exposed to air and also not being too deep where you can't get enough light. And so that's why they typically don't occur too deep in, in the basin estuaries that we see them in, in California. So in Elkhorn Slough, which is the study system that I've done the majority of my work in, it occurs around between zero and two and a half meters deep in Elkhorn Slough. So quite shallow. Um, and uh, that's, you know, one of the things that makes them very vulnerable is that they are restricted in where they can grow. Yeah, that's what I was going to talk about. They, they, uh, the, where I've seen them grow here in the river estuaries, Big River and Albion River, they're in that range. Uh, maybe, you know, there's about a three-foot tidal range usually in the river, and, and they're very rarely uh, is their substrate exposed. So it seems like the the, the little bladder-like organelles that keep them afloat help kind of keep them close to the surface and also maybe keep them from getting buried in the mud because they're, they're growing in these rivers which periodically have a pretty high sediment load and I would think getting buried is a, a big risk for these plants as well. Yeah. I know in Big River, uh, you can, on when the water's clear and you walk along uh, the banks of the river for a mile or two, uh, with the path, there's a there's like two strips of eelgrass. They're not too deep and they're not too shallow, and they go up each side of the of the river. And uh, kind of it brings back uh, you know thoughts about the salt wedge and fresh water and uh, light penetration and all those interacting factors in the estuary. Yeah, that's pretty common that you can get these like thin margins, you know, of eelgrass on either side of a channel where all these things are kind of making for the the most suitable conditions for eelgrass to grow and then it establishes itself which i guess is one thing we didn't talk about um that's important when you're talking about eelgrass is how it expands and how it reproduces so you know eelgrass can can expand vegetatively through clonal growth so the eelgrass itself it lays down a horizontal stem below the sediment surface surface called a rhizome and then from that rhizome are, are little root hairs that extend downward and that's what oxygenates the sediment and prevents sulfides from intruding the plant and things like that because again these are for the most part constantly inundated systems so you know the sediment's pretty anoxic and sulfides can build up and so it's really important that they have that mechanism for oxygenating the, uh, the sediment surface and so if you imagine like a almost like a tree root like structure that grows horizontally and then from that the vegetative shoots sprout up and so it's like kind of like a trail and then a shoot pops up and the shoot pops up and so you can have a huge meadow that can technically be a single genetic individual hmm. and so that's where a lot of eelgrass expansion occurs is through clonal expansion and then the other form of eelgrass expansion and, and growth is through germination. So the plants will either produce male or female parts. 
And then the male flowers release the pollen, which then is carried by the water, attaches to a female flower, that fertilizes the flower, that produces the seed. The seeds of Zosera are typically negatively buoyant, so they don't travel very far, but they, you know, if you have a pretty strong tidal system, they could be pushed pretty far. I mean, some of these systems are, the tide really, really, really moves in these places. And then the seeds drop out, and then it's kind of uh, <laughs> rare, but hopefully you have some successful germination in where the seed has dropped out. Um, and so that's another way through uh, sexual reproduction that eelgrass can grow and expand. Um, and so, you know, that's important for management purposes because a lot of eelgrass restoration you know, there's two camps. There's the transplanting mature shoots and the seeding uh, approach. And so uh, the, those are sort of um, the two the two ways. Yeah, there was an interesting paper in Science lately that I'm sure are aware of, uh, I think it was done in British Columbia, where they looked at the interaction of, uh, of, of uh, sea otters and how it affects the genetics of the uh, seagrasses and uh, these little seeds that could roll into a pit that was dug uh, in the eelgrass bed and uh, it would germinate from sexual reproduction and then that with sexual reproduction to get a lot more genetic diversity and maybe a little bit more resilience in a community to various kinds of uh, negative environmental factors yeah definitely and and there is in, at the small scale, there they have you know in places like Bodega Bay, Randall Hughes and others, and Susan Williams, the late Susan Williams, have found you know that at the small scale there's quite a bit of genetic di diversity in these meadows, um, but between sites, is a little less so. But we have the similar similar pattern in Elkhorn Slough in that um, you know sea otters dig these very characteristic pits where they go digging for clams, sort of similar to um, the pits that bat rays and such build when they're foraging for benthic in fauna. Um, and so I, I, I'm sure Brent Brent's working on that in Elkhorn Slough, seeing if similar patterns occurring there, but we definitely have otters digging pits and making kind of a mess of, <laughs> in the benthic environment. And that actually helps the eelgrass rather than hindering it. Yeah, I think that's what they found in, in, in British Columbia. You know, in Elkhorn Slough, having dove over a lot of those otter pits, they're sort of unique in that they're, they'll be in the middle of a meadow and it's the only bear patch. So um, I haven't tracked whether that's, you know, re-established by a super genetically diverse patch of eelgrass or not. Um, but it's definitely a bioturbation effect, whether it's positive or negative. I don't know if which is the case. Well, there are quite a few otters in uh, that's Elkhorn Slough, right? So that's a big, oh yeah, yeah, it's a big population. So yeah, it's a big population, and there, you know, some of Brent's um, work was in identifying that trophic cascade that showed that the sea otters have an indirect positive effect on eelgrass bed health by eating these predatory crabs that eat these critical mesograzers that grow on the blades of, uh, that eat the epiphytes that grow on the blades of the seagrass. And so by allowing the epifauna to, um, you know, graze the epiphytes, their otters were having this indirect positive effect on eelgrass health and expansion in Elkhorn Slough, despite 
you know, it nitrate concentrations only increasing. And so they were able to kind of counterbalance or counteract the effects of eutrophication in the estuary through that trevor cascade. So there's certainly an otter effect in the estuary. I think I saw that article as well, that, that uh, essentially in layman's terms, the, there's uh, algae and, and other small, what you call the epiphytes, that are growing on the blades of the eelgrass. And in doing so, they hinder its access to sunlight. And so there are nudibranchs that go along and graze off those things, mm -hmm. right? And keep exactly. the blades of the eelgrass clean. Uh, but they don't, the nudibranchs don't graze directly on the eelgrass itself. So they're kind of this cleaner organism. And then the, in this complex dynamic that happens in these in, uh, environments, uh, there are predators on the nudibranchs. And so if you have too many of those, you don't have enough nudibranchs and your eelgrass health suffers. But when everything is just right, you've got otters eating the predators and there's still enough of those around, uh, but not too many. And so you get a healthy population of nudibranchs as well as a healthy population of otters and their prey. Yeah, it's kind of a classic uh, trophic dynamic. Uh, yeah, it really is. Yeah, one of these yeah. classic yeah. top-down controls. Yeah. What first got yeah. my attention with the seagrasses was... Uh, a paper published years ago, uh, and I forget the species of seagrass, but it was in the Potomac River near Washington, D.C., and um, it had to do with clams and seagrasses and and also the suspended sediment loads, where the seagrass would settle, it would kind of stabilize the sediment, and it would be less uh, sediment suspended in the water with the tidal flux, and therefore more light. So the seagrasses were kind of modifying the environment in their favor because there's a feedback loop there mm -hmm. and it also allowed the clams and other things to kind of uh, get established uh, in the roots of the seagrass because the sediment was uh, uh, fairly stable uh, compared to areas where there's no seagrasses so yeah there's a lot of really nice examples of, of species interactions like that and you know there's some emerging work of you know building on past work of these chemo symbiotic clams that often co-occur with the seagrass and that the clams they get the majority of these clams get the majority of their nutrition from symbiotic gill bacteria that use sediment sulfides to make their own food and so they're stripping the sediment of these toxins which then has obviously the a positive effect on the eelgrass, which is very sensitive to the sulfides. And so by them co-occurring, there's this really nice mutualism between the two species. Yeah, and it's really cool when we get examples of this. And and in Elkhorn Slough in particular, we've, we've seen quite a dramatic decline in our native oyster populations. And so we're working right now on reestablishing oysters in the estuary and working on pairing that with eelgrass restoration as well so interesting you brought up oysters because there's a i think a conflict in management uh, up in uh, humboldt bay between expanded oyster farms and seagrass habitat uh, which mm -hmm. uh, also helps a lot of migrating uh, ducks and so forth yeah yeah and i think you know a lot of the science that's coming out is showing you know, from Danielle Zacherl's lab down in, uh, she works in Newport Back Bay in Southern California. They're showing that, you know, a lot of the times the effect between aquaculture and eelgrass is neutral or 
positive. And so it, it really, really is site specific. The, the interaction between oyster aquaculture and eelgrass expansion, you know, there's no, no doubt that the, the infrastructure for the aquaculture hinders eelgrass, right? Cause it shades, it shades the, the eelgrass and things like that. And there's been a lot of work out of a uh, Christy Croker's lab at UC Santa Cruz and Sarah Lummis's studies that have worked with Hog Island Oyster Company in Bodega Bay and Tamales Bay, trying to figure out, you know, she's, Sarah has actually tracked eelgrass moving into the oyster aquaculture area that you, you know, it didn't previ previously occur in. And so there might be some sort of interesting, maybe nutrient subsidy or something like that that's going on that's allowing eelgrass to move in. Now, interesting that you mentioned Tomales Bay and people are doing some research there. I did, did a master's degree in, uh, in working in Tomales Bay looking at reproductive uh, cycles of invertebrates. And um, there's a tremendous eelgrass bed that stretches north from Hog Island kind of on the uh, uh, it's on the kind of on the uh, western side of the bay but uh, uh, it, it's a like a long arm that reaches out and it just uh, during the winter attracts white winged scoters and other kinds of migrating seabirds or, or maybe they just they're just there for the uh, for the winter but uh, tremendous uh, bird interactions uh, that go there go on there yeah there's you know when when the migrating geese come in they definitely can have a pretty substantial effect on the eelgrass i think it's the the brant's geese that grazes on the eelgrass but just trims it and cuts the eelgrass and consumes it so they're a big herbivore in the system that can have a pretty pretty big impact and then the Can canadian geese the canada geese they they just pull up the whole thing they're pretty destructive so there's oh, wow. um been a lot of work tracking those impacts, those impacts of that type of, those different types of herbivory in uh, San Francisco Bay and Tamales Bay. Yeah. Yeah, that That's an interesting distinction because my understanding is Brant uh, rely on eelgrass. It's their mm -hmm. primary food source and Canada geese, uh, it's not. Canada geese, I guess, will, will eat it because it looks like grass, but mm -hmm. they're primarily a terrestrial grass eater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, Tim, you're a, you're a bird guy. Uh, my impression, maybe I misidentified some of the ducks, but that I thought there were white-winged scoters and maybe feeding on mollusks. Uh, you know. Yeah, that's clams. what's there's that there's, there's white-winged and the white-winged are becoming increasingly scarce, uh, but there's a lot of surf scoters. Yeah. And both both species feed extensively on clams. Uh, they they forage down in the sand and the mud for bivalves and. Uh, I don't think they eat eelgrass primarily. Do you know, Dr. Beheshti? No, I, I don't think that they eat the eelgrass directly, but that's been a big conversation that we've been having at the Ocean Protection Council with um, one of the grantees, the Audubon, California, because they've been tracking the decline of surf scoter. And they have been hugely invested in protecting eelgrass for the you know surf scoter population, I think that surf scoter they they eat the herring eggs. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So that's why they're kind of tightly coupled with eelgrasses because they consume actually. The I herring. think is it the I think it might be the white wing scoter that really goes after the herring spawn. Okay. 
because you get a lot of those in San Francisco Bay where you get a herring spawn. I don't know. I don't think we get a herring spawn here on the Mendocino coast at all. Our, our eelgrass beds don't seem to draw them in. And, and so we don't get white wing scoters here except just passing through. Mm-hmm. I think there's a herring spawn in Tomales Bay. Um, I don't know how big it is. Yeah, that would. I think. I think it's the white wings that really go after that herring spawn, and and its surf scoters are primarily foraging in the in the benthic for uh, for bivalves, mm-hmm. or mollusks in general, really. Yeah, they can crack clams with those big comedy bills they have. Well, if you've just joined us, uh, listeners, uh, we're talking to uh, Dr. Catherine Beheshti, as a Sea Grant Fellow at the Ocean Protection Council and soon to be at UC Santa Barbara, and we're talking about nearshore ecology, particularly focusing on eelgrass and uh, its role and uh, how it's some of the management challenges with it and, and uh, some of the interactions with some of the other species that we care a lot about, like sea otters and clams and seabirds. Just a reminder to listeners that this program was recorded last November of 2021. Yeah, maybe it's time to talk about what the uh, threats are what's the conservation status on on eelgrass and what uh, what kinds of things are affecting its distribution right now yeah definitely so you know seagrasses in general because they're near shore coastal habitats and often in our bays and estuaries that are heavily impacted by human activity we're seeing a global loss of these habitats especially worldwide. But for California in particular, some of the main threats are, you know, nutrient pollution from agricultural or urban runoff, um, because mainly it always comes down to these, the two main factors that I like to think about. So it's, if, if these threats impact light and, or, uh, well, actually, Pretty much just light. <laughs> so nutrient pollution <laughs> so the can main, basically the two main light and light, are light and light. <laughs> but through different mechanisms, right? So that's kind of where. So the nutrient pollution can trigger macroalgal blooms that can then smother the plants or block light by by increasing the turbidity of photoplankton blooms or these huge like ephemeral macroalgal blooms where you get sheets of things like ulva or also known as sea lettuce that can grow over the eelgrass, you know, and these are really fast growing uh, algae. But then there's also the threat of increased turbidity, which can be a product of dredging activity, coastal development, um, also runoff, um, you know, when we don't get a lot of rain for a while and then we get these large, you know, atmospheric river type events, the turbidity in these systems where eelgrass occurs is is through the roof. I mean, it looks like chocolate milk out there. And so that that's not letting much sunlight in. So, so seagrass is particularly vulnerable to those types of things. You know, there's also the more um, uh, small scale, but still substantial threats of scars to the beds in the meadows that can be caused by propellers or anchors or moorings. Um, And recently there's been a project to establish an eelgrass protection management plan that's going in, um, actually I think it's in in Marin County, 
in Sausalito in Richardson's Bay, where they're going to actually mark off areas where they're not going to allow anchoring of um, any boats so that the eelgrass that has been lost from all these anchoring anchor outs um, will be able to recover. And so there's there's some, some management efforts to um, allow the eelgrass to recover from those types of events. This, this is a really commonly um, discussed thing in, in Florida um, where you have a lot of uh, scars that are very easy to see from above um, because of the water so clear. Um, and that's a big problem over there. As well, there's also wasting disease, which occurs pretty much in all eelgrass meadows at pretty low frequencies. But the reason that it's always mentioned is because in the 1930s, there was massive eelgrass loss uh, in the uh, North Atlantic. And um, they lost like 90% of their eelgrass habitat from this wasting disease, which is caused by this slime mold that grows on the eelgrass and um, basically causes it to die. And so that's another one. And, you know, another thing that's, you know, become a little bit more uh, of a concern in the last, you know, six months is invasives. So I don't know if you guys heard about the outbreak of the new Calerpa species, Calerpa prolifera. Calerpa in general is a um, um, invasive that was introduced through aquaria, the aquaria industry. And it's outcompetes eelgrass and so it's it's pretty terrible um and it grows really fast and so NOAA and the National Marine Fisheries Service kind of like responded with all all uh boots on the ground pretty quickly to try and eradicate this new outbreak of uh Calerpa uh, prolifera so that's another one that can can be a major threat um but but basically it's it's anything that can smother Eelgrass through either uh, actual like out competing it for space and or impacting uh, light availability. So this yeah, calerpa uh, is a, is another grass like. Uh, it's a seaweed. Plant. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Mm-hmm. So is it like a brown or green algae? I think it's brown. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I remember Joel Hedgepeth, who was the director of the. Pacific Marine Station in uh, Tomales, uh, it was in, you know, right at the head of Tomales Bay and Dillon Beach. Um, years ago, when I was working on my master's degree there, he said there had been a big wasting disease uh, in the 30s and 40s in Tomales Bay. Um, oh. I didn't didn't realize it was on the East Coast mainly, but maybe uh, any historic records that you're aware of of, uh, of, of that disease reaching the Pacific Coast? I, I do know there were there's been quite a few outbreaks in the past. We haven't seen any like widespread you know really dramatic losses from wasting um, on the Pacific Northwest in the you know last thirty so years. But it, it is a concern with rising sea temperature sea surface temperatures that these eelgrass meadows might be more susceptible to disease and that 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 could be something that we see in the future. It's kind of, so the characteristic of the the wasting disease is this this black, brownish scars that occur on the eelgrass. And so if you're ever kayaking in any of these shallow bays or estuaries and over an eelgrass bed, you'll you'll often see um, those types of marks. And so it it does occur pretty much everywhere, but um, 
maybe it's the ticking time bomb that none of us are preparing for, for an outbreak, (laughs) but it is a concern. I know a lot of people still talk about it because it was so jarring, the dramatic losses from the 30s. Well, that sounds kind of like a classic evolutionary event, though. If you lose 90% of your population, the the remaining 10% has some particular reason why it survived, and so your remaining population is better fit. And yeah. if if this if this is an endemic disease, then it's kind of continuously genet- improving the genetics of the eelgrass resistance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. Theoretically. Mm -hmm. or it would if we didn't change the environment in theory (laughs) if it's got the right genes to start with and and if we didn't if you know if we didn't do anything really foolish like you know changing the climate or something right right exactly (laughs) so yeah is climate change having an effect on eelgrass or likely to or is it uh, in a pretty good position given it's you know where it lives yeah it's a great question so The answer kind of depends. So, you know, a lot of the literature says that increased CO2 concentrations are going to be great for eelgrass, and eelgrass is going to be one of the few winners with uh, increased global climate change. Um, Photosynthesis ramps up, you know, chlorophyll Mm -hmm. does decrease with increased CO2 concentrations, but there's, you know, a lot of work that's going on right now and actually the surf conference there was a lot of presentations this year which is wrapping up i think today actually that was looking at kind of uh uh, multiple stressors including increased temperature um and increased co2 and how plants are responding but generally speaking you know unless it's beyond the thermal tolerance of eelgrass which is quite high i I think it's like about Oh my gosh, what is it in Celsius? I know it's like 80, high 80s in Fahrenheit um, is their their wow. upper thermal limit. So, um, you know, as long as it's within their thermal tolerance, increased CO2 concentrations are, are going to be just fine for eelgrass. It's, and and it, what's kind of cool about that is that eelgrass is, is really uh, leading the charge in terms of nature-based uh, climate solutions, right? And so eelgrass does store a ton of carbon. It's one of its huge functions and services is it its ability to store and sequester carbon. And for zostra or eelgrass in particular, most of that carbon storage comes through its ability to trap sediment, which includes organic and inorganic particles, of course. Um, and so through that slowing of water flow and the dropping out of sediment, that happens when water flows across an eelgrass meadow, just like when you're looking out at the shore, you know, and you're seeing a kelp bed, you always see that the kelp is very easy to distinguish from the surrounding area because the water's usually glassier, right? So a similar process happens for eelgrass meadows. The eelgrass slow water flow and that allows sediments to to settle out. And so they're storing carbon that way. Um, And they're a pretty, pretty effective though it is variable in their ability to do this at ameliorating ocean acidification by stripping the water of that carbon dioxide and um, acting as a buffer to ocean acidification and so since like we discussed earlier a lot of seagrasses co-occur with these sensitive calcareous species like bivalves like clams and oysters this this function is going to be particularly important in our shallow coastal bays and estuaries where um are, uh, some of our species are, are particularly sensitive to ocean acidification. 
Um, you know, and they also, of course, are releasing oxygen. So that offers a little bit of a buffer against hypoxia, but, um, or low oxygen environments and conditions, but it's, 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 it's interesting. I think the, the general thought is that eelgrass is going to be relatively okay with global climate change. And with sea level rise, unfortunately, we might lose a lot of our tidal marshes, but maybe that's the future habitat for our eelgrass habitat. You know, right. once sea levels rise and those pickleweed and spartina marshes kind of drown, that might be prime habitat. Right. It might. In, yeah. Interesting story, actually, that, it, you know, that this may be one of the beneficiaries of climate change. Yeah. A, a recurring theme on our show is the, you know, the winners and losers. Mm -hmm. uh, we tend often in the popular media to focus primarily on the losers uh, from environmental alteration and, and habitat disruption. But there's always uh, change in conditions always benefits some species and uh, even as it harms others. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of people are are trying to push now towards conservation and management decisions that will protect potential eelgrass habitat or suitable eelgrass habitat, so that as global change and human impacts kind of shift where eelgrass can grow, it has the ability to do so. And so that's that's another thing that kind of California is sort of trying to move towards, which is pretty neat. Yeah, that is. It's great. The for, uh, an unusual, unusually forward thinking for humans. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do we have? We learned something in the last uh, fifty years about uh, eelgrass restoration, and I know there was efforts in some places in San Francisco Bay that didn't necessarily pan out. But uh, maybe we've learned how to do it better. Uh, is that a big effort these days? I know there was. I can't remember the name, but there was a woman scientist at UC, I think San Diego State or UC San Diego, who was uh, uh, kind of the expert, you know, 20 years ago, and, and uh, I'm dating myself here, uh, and eelgrass restoration um, was kind of leading the charge. Yeah, so, you know, Dr. Kathy Boyer at San Francisco State University is kind of... Um, the leader in California eelgrass restoration work uh, for all of her work uh, in eelgrass and oyster restoration in San Francisco Bay. So she's been leading a lot of those efforts um, of like living shorelines and things like that, the concept of living shorelines um, and coupling oyster reefs with eelgrass restoration. And and she, Kathy uses an approach of, of often combining you know, the transplanting of eelgrass with seeding to kind of increase the genetic diversity of the restored habitats. Um, so she's kind of known for, for that technique. But I, I definitely feel like eelgrass restorations in general across the coast have improved in terms of final outcomes. We have been, you know, uh, everyone always cites the uh, paper by Van Katwick from 2016 that showed that you know 63 percent of seagrass restorations fail and so that that's a pretty jarring number when you consider how much it costs to restore eelgrass but you know some of um the kind of legends in this in this realm from the chesapeake bay like jj orth who have done these large-scale seeding efforts where they've put out millions and millions of seed and have restored 
you know, tons and tons of acres of eelgrass habitat in these previously polluted um, areas where there was substantial loss offer these really unique uh, success stories of large-scale success. Um, and so w w there is a little bit still uh, <laughs> hesitancy with eelgrass restoration because it is time-consuming. And on the West Coast, we don't have the same infrastructure in place as they do in the Chesapeake and at VIMS, the, uh, where they do these large-scale seeding. So a lot of the restoration efforts on the West Coast um, and along the Pacific Northwest are through transplanting. And that can take a lot of time. If you're putting one shoot in at a time, it's really hard to get really good acreage really quickly. And mm -hmm. in our restoration work in Elkhorn Slough, it seems like there is a real justification for transplanting maybe smaller scale, but higher density uh, plots because of all the positive feedbacks that would you know, ensue when you have a cluster of eelgrass pl uh, plants versus one that's a meter away from another. They can't really um, do what they're known to do uh, when they're that far spaced apart, especially when you're talking about densities in, in the natural meadows that are you know, between 60 and 90 shoots per half meter squared. So, I mean, these are pretty dense, dense meadows. Um, but I would say that in general, we're getting better at restoring eelgrass. And my hope is that we can really scale up and, and have some investment in this like large scale seeding stuff that has been so fruitful for the Chesapeake, because that's really what we need. I mean, the California Ocean Protection Council has a strategic plan priority to protect the existing 15,000 acres of seagrass in California and to add an additional thousand acres by 2025 and the scalability of you know manually putting in sh individual shoots versus seeding I mean it's just it, it, there's no comparison so if we're going to reach these kind of ambitious targets I think we need to really figure out how to scale this up and there's been like some pretty cool startups that have uh started in the UK where they're using artificial intelligence and underwater robots to like transplant, lay down seed. Uh, and so there's like a lot of, a lot of investment in this because of all the talk around blue carbon and nature-based solutions that are happening at the international level. Um, so that's, it's a really cool time to be restoring eelgrass for sure. So, so the, the restoration, thing, when they're restoring, just uh, what is it that caused the, it, they're restoring areas where eelgrass formerly existed but somehow got wiped out uh, what what is it that caused the eelgrass to disappear in the first place yeah so it's a great question so sometimes it's you know a lot of these systems are quite dynamic and so they might have had a lot of deposition and now the tidal elevation is too high in the tidal frame to support eelgrass or um tidal flow has changed or uh there's been uh, changes in erosion or um, of the surrounding environment and uh, changes in water quality actually is like a big one. Um, so in, in those cases, it seems like restoration wouldn't work. Uh, exactly. 
no matter how you do it, right? Exactly, which is why the most important thing for eelgrass restoration is picking a site that's suitable for restoration. And so there's been a huge investment recently in building out these site suitability models that can really narrow in on where is is the appropriate place to restore eelgrass and um, it's using historical distributions but also you know a lot of the long-term monitoring data um, that's collected for you know things like chlorophyll and turbidity and ocean temperature and things like this uh, things like that so is yep. the emergence strategy see is what I, i'm kind of hearing is that if you get small dense clumps going uh, by vegetative uh, uh, reproduction, you could extend those and maybe mm -hmm. close the gaps between adjacent clumps. Is, is that a good way to think about what might work? Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And, you know, I'm speaking from my own personal experience in restoring eelgrass and elkhorn slough, where we restored, you know, these really small 50 by 50 centimeter plots, put 20 shoots in the plots. And over just three years, overall, the habitat area expanded 8,500% from the initial area transplanted. I mean, we saw massive expansion. It was so cool. So cool. Yeah. It was really fun. I mean, you're like, you're going down there on scuba. Again, like I said, like you're like five feet deep and you're just underwater gardening with a hand trowel and a seagrass blade <laughs> and a garden staple and put them in the ground and then come back later and it's like, 30 straw hat on <laughs> oh yeah exactly and it's like you know these plots like you come back and something that was you know 50 by 50 centimeters so like you know if you're if you're if you extend your hand out that's like usually the tip of your finger to your elbow ish is about 50 yeah. centimeters i mean we're talking small plots and then you come back a year later and it's 15 meters by like 12 meters. I mean, this is like tremendous expansion. It's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. When you get that vegetative runner propagation going, I mean, there's terrestrial grasses that are major league pests. <laughs> yeah. At least in my garden that reproduce the same way. And uh, you see my front lawn. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it's it an African, sounds like the right, same African phenomenon. Grass. <laughs> same phenomenon, but with a dramatically different emotional response. Yes, this is true. <laughs> and then, okay, uh, Tim, I have, we're coming to the end here, I think. We are coming close to the end, so this is the time of the show when we normally ask our guest uh, if there are uh, two questions. One is, uh, what else would you like to our listeners to know about eelgrass and whether there's anything they can do to get involved in any of it? And the second question is, uh, where would listeners go to find out more about it? Great. Okay, so I think what I would love to tell everyone about eelgrass, it, because, you know, it is one of those habitats that's hidden to a lot of people. You know, it's just below the water surface. And so a lot of the time, unless you're kayaking or out on a boat, you can't see it. But it's kind of this silent hero of our ocean. And, you know, they provide just such a huge suite of ecosystem functions and services. They, like we discussed, they store carbon, but they also support the nursery habitat and provide the nursery habitat for a lot of species that we humans love to eat like Dungeness crab and, you know, rockfish, cod, halibut, sole. I mean, the list goes on. They're hugely important in supporting commercial and recreational fisheries. And so, you know, they also, like we talked about, they're, they're kind of 
known as like the lungs of the sea in that they improve water quality, which is hugely important for all Californians because, you know, as Californians, we have like this inextricable link to our coastline, right? And and that's like a source of pride. And so maintaining a healthy coastline is really important to a lot of Californians and eelgrass is super instrumental in, in making sure that that happens. And they, you know, also provide storm protection to a lot of our developed coastlines. So by slowing water action and wave wave action and and storm storm water, they're able to protect our coast from erosion and things like that. And so it's it's really important. Eelgrass is just so hugely important, and it provides so many benefits to humans and the species that you the other species besides us <laughs> that use them. And so that's what I would like to tell everyone is that uh, everyone should care about eelgrass uh, if you care about a healthy coast and ocean. Um, and for where you can learn about eelgrass, so there's quite a few resources and I can provide links to you, to you both that you can include maybe in the notes for the show. But um, I guess a, a one-stop shop sort of could be my own personal website, which is sluit.com s-l-o-u-g-h-i-t.com and so this is a place where i update everyone about the latest and greatest for all things estuarine and nearshore science um, and in particular all the things i discussed today and on that website are all the links for the papers that i referenced um, that i'm a part of and uh, some media releases and um, more fun, engaging things like videos of us actually restoring eelgrass in Elkhorn Slough. So things that are a little bit more interactive and, and fun. And so that might be a good resource if I was to direct people to one place. Um, that would Great. probably be a good That's one. Fantastic. Perfect. I'm yeah. sure Tim will put that on our website. Yep, we'll have that up on theecologyhour.wordpress.com. Dr. Beheshti, thank you very much for uh, devoting an hour to uh, shining a little light on a part of the ecosystem that is close by for many of us here on the Mendocino Coast, but rarely actually seen or, I think, thought much about. So, much appreciated. That was a great, uh, great overview. Thank you so much. I had a ton of fun. The hour flew by. <laughs> it did. Well, good night, listeners, and thank you for listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. Our guest tonight has been Dr. Catherine Beheshti, a postdoctoral fellow with the Ocean Protection Council and soon-to-be research assistant with UC Santa Barbara. Tonight's interview was recorded in mid-November, so we will be back with you next month. Good night, and thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.